Well, this is week three of a series we're calling You Asked For It, where the congregation submits questions and I'm trying my best to answer them. Uh, it's hard, though, because I've got a limited number of sermons and, and places to talk about it, and there's more questions than I have time to answer. I'm going to uh, try to put some of them on Facebook and some videos just to get them some, of the more, some more questions answered. And then some of them, if you think, hey, he didn't talk about that one I wanted. Well, some of them gave me a good idea. I thought, that's probably something that we should make a sermon series out of in 2018. So some of you, you, you didn't get your question answered in this series. Well, you will next year, so uh, don't fret about that too much. Um, so today, though, is a, a tough question that's a tricky one. And, and maybe you want to put it up here. You won't, it won't mean anything to you, and that's okay. We'll, we'll get there. Um, first up, here we go. It says, why did Ananias and Sapphira have to die? And if you, that doesn't mean anything to you, you might not know the story of Ananias and Sapphira, and that's okay, we're going to learn it today. Um, but if you've ever thought that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament seemed like two completely different people, two completely different beings, and you thought, man, Old Testament God was all like wrath and fire and destruction, and New Testament God's all love and grace and forgiveness, well, you get a little hint of what you might traditionally think of as Old Testament God here in the New Testament. And just to, I'm just going to spoil the end of the story for you, but it's a story where God just takes two people in the church and he just drops them dead with almost no warning. I mean, they learn that they're going to die in like the half second before they die for something that they've done. And it seems very shocking and out of character that, that God would all of a sudden just strike these two people down with no warning. And, and so if you've ever kind of struggled to make sense of God in the Old Testament, God in the New, God of justice and wrath and God of forgiveness and peace, this story actually will help to kind of mend those two together. Um, it might not make you feel warm and fuzzy with the answer, but it definitely helps to put those two stories together. Now, like anything when you want to understand a portion of the Bible, like if you're reading it at home, if you're ever trying to understand something that you're reading, the best thing to do is to branch outside of the chunk that you're reading. If something is ever confusing, context is everything. Read what comes before it and what comes after it. And so to really understand Ananias and Sapphira, we've got to understand what's going on as we get to their story. And so we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. If you want to get a Bible and follow along, this is the only place we're going to be for this particular question. Acts chapter 4, 32. And one of the things that bums me out is back when they were adding chapters and verses to make the Bible a little bit more easy to navigate, they split the story of Ananias and Sapphira with a chapter. Into the new, and, and it makes it, as we're reading it, we think, oh, new chapter, maybe new topic. And that is not the case at all. Ananias and Sapphira totally goes with what's coming before it. And so it's such a shame that they put the chapter break right there. But they didn't ask me, and so I didn't get to put any input in. So we're stuck with what we got. But, um, but that's another thing to know if you're reading the Bible at home. Those chapter markers aren't always the best indicator of what, uh, where, where the story changes. Sometimes they're dead on, but not always. So... As we pick up the story, this is the beginning of the church. The church is just a very new thing. Uh, there was the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit first fell on Christians, and 3,000 people believed in Christ that day after Peter preached one dandy of a sermon, and, and we're still very much in the early days of the church. But you see a radical difference between what came before 
The description of the church here is not something you see described anywhere else of the people of God in the Old Testament. In fact, when you read the people of God in the Old Testament, I'm reading through Judges now in my personal time, and the people of God in the Old Testament were an absolute mess. And it's so frustrating to read about them sometimes because they can't stay faithful for three seconds. But as you read this little chunk at the, at the tail end of Acts chapter 4, it gives you such a beautiful picture of what the Spirit of God has done in this group of people. So it says this, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Now pause right there real quick, just to, again, add how spectacular this was. There's at least 3,000 people, probably quite a few more. So this is a decent-sized church, right? And it says they were all of one heart and soul. That can only be the work of the Holy Spirit. Because if you've ever been in a room with even eight people and tried to agree on a pizza order, you know that people are never in agreement about anything big issue or something small and trivial. And here we have the Spirit adding this amazing unity to the people of God right from the very beginning. It says, And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as he had need. So we see, like again, a good snapshot of what the early church was, and they're overflowing with several things. One, this great message of Christ being their salvation is the front message. And not only is it a sermon like I would preach, but these guys that are preaching, they were the ones that saw Jesus, listened to his teaching for three years, watched all the miracles, saw him die, saw him rise, heard him teach again, saw him ascend into heaven. Like these guys, they were like front row seats to the whole work of Jesus. They saw it all. Their word was powerful. And so they get, they get the teaching of Christ. Secondly, it says great grace was upon them all. They all were aware that we're sinners, and if it weren't for Jesus, we'd be lost. They were aware that it was Christ that was their salvation. And thirdly, they were overflowing with generosity. Like, not just little generosity. Like, they were going out and selling chunks of land and property that they had and giving it to the church. Like, it wasn't like, oh, gosh, here comes the plates. Here's the dollar. That's what I had in my pocket. And 35 cents. Like, that's not how it was. They would go sell something because they wanted to make sure nobody in the church had any need. There was such compassion and unity for everybody in this body. And then we get a specific example of it, of what this looked like in verse 36. And then Joseph who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. So, like, I've had nicknames before, but never, they weren't really, like, great nicknames. Like, you ever, like some of you got a nickname because you were, you know, tall and lanky and they called you Stretch or something like that. Um, the, the most creative nickname I got growing up was Blistopher Robin, which, for, for like, someone gave me that in a high school chemistry class, and I was like, Finally, an original, because I got Blister, Blistex, all kinds of stuff like that. But Blister for Robin, I was like, that one I'd never, ever heard before. Kudos to creativity, right? So I never had a good one that, like, like it felt good, like, to have that nickname. They were just like, well, you stuck my name in there somewhere. Like, that's what it was. But he gets, he's such an encouraging person. The apostles called him the son of encouragement. That's what his nickname meant. And, and he's so over-the-top encouraging. His name was Barnabas, is what they called him. A Levite, a native of Cyprus. 
He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So he's over the top, wants to help people. He says, here you go, apostles. Here's some money from the land I sold. You guys give it to whoever needs the help. And so things are looking great, right? As we end chapter four, it's like, man, the church, what a bunch of swell folks, right? Everything seems to be going great. And then you get to this colossal, weird bummer of a story in chapter five. And maybe that's why they put the chapter marker there, just because they thought, boy, this really took a turn quick uh, for the worse. Um, So let's go off here and, and start in chapter five. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property with... So, like, pause right there, right? Oh, good. We're going to have another repeat of these super generous people. But, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Now, the thing that he's getting in trouble for is not holding back the money. He came forward giving the impression that the money he was giving to the church was all of the money that he earned from the sale of his property. He's trying to convince them, yep, this is 100%. I'm so generous. I sold that land, and I'm giving all that money to the church. He's giving this illusion that he's more generous than he really is. But the church wasn't, I mean, they weren't about twisting arms. This wasn't like a guilt-driven campaign like, oh, you're not giving all the money? Hmm, only the really spiritual people, I guess, can be really generous. They weren't doing that kind of stuff, right? They weren't forcing people to sell their property. They weren't forcing people to give, okay? Because he goes on and he says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Saying, no one made you sell it. It was your land. Why? I mean, no one was forcing you to give this land up. And he says, and after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? That was your money to give as you could have chosen. There's nothing wrong with keeping back a portion for yourself and giving some to the church. But why did you have to convince us or or trick us into thinking that you had given everything you earned from that land. So his sin here is deception and lying. And he says, why is it that you have contrived this, excuse me, contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear fell upon all who heard of it. I bet it did. Like, can you imagine if I just, like, busted somebody out for something in the church and they just keeled over in the pew? Like, that'd make the news, right? Like, that's a big deal. And, and so everybody hears about this and, like, holy smokes, did you hear what he did? And he just dropped like a rock. Yeah, everyone else is going to kind of pick up a little bit and mind what's going on. And it says, the young men rose because, man, what a good church. You put them young guys to work, right? They rose, they wrapped him up, and they carried him out, and they buried him. And an interval of about three hours, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. So here comes Sapphira, not knowing that her husband has been dead for three hours, not knowing he's been buried. She thinks they've gotten away with the lie. She comes sauntering into church thinking everybody's going to give her a big old round of applause for being so generous and kind. And she's probably feeling pretty good about herself. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Meaning, this is how much he gave us. Is that how much you sold the land for? And she said, yeah, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they said, oh, man, we got to dig another hole. We just got done with one hole. 
The young men came in and they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Of course, they were scared. So the problem was not that they kept any money. The problem was they wanted to trick everybody into thinking that they had given all of the money to the church. And the thing about it that's so weird is that Peter says, you haven't lied to us, you've lied to God. Because this gives you the impression that Ananias and Sapphira, they didn't just think they were tricking the church people, they thought they were tricking God. They thought that by giving a certain amount to the church, and if they could fool Peter and the other apostles, that would convince, that, that they were convinced that that was then fooling God, that God would then think they were so kind and so generous, they were trying to get on God's good side. They were lying to Peter, and they thought they were fooling God as well. Now, people have been trying this kind of stuff since the beginning of time. People have been trying to trick God into thinking that they were holier than they really were. This is what Isaiah the pro- uh, prophesied when he said, These, This people draw near me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. This is when in, earlier in Isaiah he says, I'm so sick of your offerings. I'm so sick of you just coming in and giving these half-hearted offerings and sacrifices to me. I don't want that. I want a broken and contrite spirit. I want somebody who's going to give me your heart. I'm sick of somebody who just thinks they can jump through religious hoops and earn my approval. God isn't about that kind of stuff. He is not about jumping through the religious hoops. And, but yet then when it comes to this whole idea of Christ and letting the Holy Spirit come into our lives and change us who we are on the inside, we don't want that. We just want to trick God. We want to come to church and play it off like we're super holy, super religious. You know, oh, I came to church, and I put money in the plate when it went by, and I, you know, I stood when I was supposed to stand and sit when I was supposed to sit, and maybe I even helped out a little bit, and I, I, I prayed before dinner all week. I didn't forget once to pray before my meals. Even when I got McDonald's in my car at, at, after work that one day, I, I still prayed because that's what God wants. But, and then we think, but as long as I'm outside of those little religious moments, God can't see me, and I can do whatever I want. God is not convinced with just you jumping through religious hoops, doing the, these right things, but never letting him actually into your heart. The, so many of the teachings of Jesus, he is very clear that God is more about your heart than your behavior. Now that's not to say that God doesn't care how you act, but it's saying that when Jesus has your heart, your behavior will be changed and it will follow. But to just try to fake it till you make it, that's not exactly what God wants from us. And so when we try to fool God into thinking that we're better than we are with religious activity, he is not going to be fooled by that. And that's what Ananias and Sapphira were trying to do. And, you know, again, God's followers, we've always had that tendency to kind of try to divide our life. We try to give God just enough to get our ticket to heaven, but we don't want to really change. We don't really want to give up what we think is fun. We don't want to give up the things that we love that maybe we shouldn't love. And I don't know why we keep trying to do that, because there's never anything good to be said about that in Scripture. There's never anything good to be said about half in devotion. Um, I think it's in the book of Revelation that Jesus says, that's lukewarm. And you know what that makes me feel? Sick. Half-hearted devotion, half in, half out. Pick a side, people. You're trying to walk the middle? That's nothing. That's disgusting. You try to be be kind of religious just enough to get into heaven, but you're never letting Jesus into your heart? God says, that makes me sick. And I've told this before, 
and I, it's very effective. And so just to help you get that idea of what it means when you're this half in, half out, how sick and despising God uh, makes it. Um, my family's not here today because James woke up in the middle of the night with a tummy ache and a fever. And we thought, of all the generosity and giving we want to do at Christmas, that, that's not the one. So we thought we'd contain that. But he wakes up. I didn't even, he crawled into our bed in the middle of the night. I didn't even know he crawled in our bed. I mean, when I go to sleep, it's like, I'm, I want to go to sleep, you know? And so he could be laying on top of me most of the time. I don't even know. But he starts moaning, and, tell, and Abby's like, you know, she goes into mom mode. The second she hears a noise, and what's wrong, baby? And, you know, he's got a fever. She, she just sensed it from across the bed that he had a fever. I don't even know how she knew it, but she's like, let's go out to the couch. We'll get a bucket, because he said his tummy hurt and all that stuff, you know? When you have something that makes your stomach hurt to the point where you're going to have that, you know, expulsion of whatever it is that you had for dinner the night before. You know that there's, it evolves in a certain way. You know, you get that weird spit that starts to show up like right here behind your teeth and in the back of your tongue. You start to know it. And then you get that weird sensation right here in the of your throat. And then your tongue. Your tongue. Yeah. You know, see? Yeah, do we need buckets? Hold on. And then your tongue. Hold it together. Breathe through your mouth. Right? And then your tongue forms that involuntary water slide, you know, and your, your chin goes out. And you don't, even, you don't even mean for it. It just happens, and you can't control it, and you don't want it to, and you're praying, dear Lord Jesus, not now. I've had three years of not throwing up. Please not. Let me keep the streak alive. And it happens anyway, and it's just the worst when you start throwing up, especially if you've got the flu where you just keep throwing up. Whenever you look at something, smell something, it just turns your stomach, and out it comes. You know that feeling of being sick that disgusting, I never want to feel that way, you might never eat macaroni and cheese again for the rest of your life kind of sick, right? (laughs) Sorry, Um, maybe that was too far. (laughs) But to get the idea, I think we're all on the same page now, that kind of disgusting feeling is what God says he feels about half in, half out mentality about approaching him. And so we come back to the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Jesus says, we're going to start a new thing. The Spirit of God is going to be upon you, and you're going to be a different kind of people. For the first time in history, you're going to be my people. You're going to be redeemed and saved, and you're going to be led by the Spirit, and you are to be all in, shaped by Christ from the inside out. And here in chapter 5 of the book of Acts, we get the first hint of somebody not doing that. We get the first hint of somebody trying to bring back in that half-in, half-out hypocrisy. And God meets it with this very stern fist of justice. And I think the point is to say, is God is saying, we're not going to be like this anymore. The entire Old Testament was people being committed and then falling away, and being committed and falling away, generation after generation, half in, half out. And God said, no more. This is not what we're going to tolerate in my new people, in my church. And I think he set Ananias and Sapphira as an example that the church had to be different that we had to be different, that we have to be people who are on fire for God, not just trying to get a ticket to heaven, but we actually want to be like Jesus, live like Jesus, be changed from the inside out like Jesus. And that message that he sent, it was one that scared people, it made them perk up, but it made a message that said, we have to be all in. We can't be half in anymore. That can't be what defines God's people from this point forward. And as scary as that is, and as tricky as that is, 
that is something that we can kind of take heed of. And yes, this story is weird, and yes, it kind of sticks out if you're reading through the scripture and everyone in the church is doing everything great, and then here comes these people that do something wrong, and God just went, you know, they're done. Did you notice that Sapphira, she learned about her husband's death and that she was getting ready to die in the same sentence? I mean, when your last thought is, wait, what? You know, that's, there's not a lot of warning before her dying. I mean, it's such a strange story, but I think it's supposed to be shocking, and I think it's supposed to make us pay attention because it's meant for us to be a different kind of people. God didn't want us to be half-hearted. He doesn't want us to be this disgusting display of people who pretend to be Christians, who act churchy in churchy settings, but go out and we are selfish and sinful and greedy and everything else Monday through, through Saturday. He wants us to be Christ all the time, shaped by Christ all the time. And it's not easy, but that's what he put us here to do. And luckily we have the help of the Holy Spirit living inside of us to give us the strength to walk that path. We're not going to do it perfectly. You catch me on the wrong day, you're going to go, he's a pastor? You know, that's just how life is. But when we have those moments where we fail God, we get back up and we say, God, I'm so sorry. Let your Holy Spirit continue to guide me and so that I might reflect Christ from this point forward. So keep walking one way, not two ways. You can't go half in, half out. You can't go half Jesus, do your own thing. That's not what God put you here to do. That's not why he brought you into this place to be part of a church. He brought us here together so that we would, with one heart, one soul, one mind, follow Jesus together. Let's pray. Father, we are incredibly grateful for all that you have done. We are incredibly grateful for this slightly frightening story of Ananias and Sapphira. We're a little bit scared by it, a little bit bewildered by it, but I pray that the, the shocking nature of it would show us that you don't want us half committed. You don't want us giving empty offerings into the offering plate. You don't want us singing with heartless voices these hymns of praise to you, songs of praise to you. You don't want us just coming to church because we think you want us to be here and that you'll give us credit just for sitting in a seat facing the same direction for an hour a week. We want to be here and a part of this community because we want to be like Christ. We want to honor you and, and walk the road that you have put before us. And yes, we're going to fail, but that's where Christ and his great sacrifice comes into play. And it's amazing and it's beautiful and it's gracious. And I pray that as we walk this road imperfectly together, that when we stumble, when we are you know, somewhat of a hypocrite because we're all going to be that. I pray that we would remind each other together that that's not what the church was meant to be. I pray that we would hold each other accountable with our mistakes and say that's not what Christians are supposed to be. We walk through with Christ, following him faithfully all the way through. And I pray that, that as we come here, that this story would serve as a reminder of what you want and that your standards are pretty high and unshakable and unflexible, that you want us, all of us, not half-hearted devotion, but you want our souls and our hearts committed to the life that you want for us. Thank you for being a God who wants more for us than what we want for ourselves. Thank you for being the God who gives us more than we would ever think to ask of. You're so good to us, and most of us, we don't even know how good you are to us day in and day out. So may we be changed by your grace, by your mercy, by your forgiveness but also shaped by your justice and your wrath as well. As we know that sin is awful, it's disgusting, it's vile, and it destroys people and hurts lives. And that's why you are so strongly and vehemently against it. Thank you.
for being a God who hates sin and wants to just destroy it out of our lives so that we might live the perfect, good, and full life that you have for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.